0: Here he is, the great Mark Kendall from Great White. Uh Mark, what's going on, man? Uh just chilling at home for a minute, um, getting ready to
1: go out. Uh, we're playing uh Tulsa at the Hard Rock. And uh Joe's are coming in, going great so far. We're finally coming to our home area and playing the Honda Center in Orange County. That's where we started. Oh, you wow. know, we yeah. so uh that's going to be fun you know it's a big place it's uh this club kind of adopted us you know way back when and uh so going back to orange county it's going to be a lot of fun to see the old old fans and stuff
0: well i saw on your website i mean there's there's tons of shows coming up you guys are always uh always at it including quite a few shows uh, with Slaughter and I know that you know with a lot of the uh, 80s yeah. rock bands uh, because you know at this point in the theater and casino levels it's mostly weekend fly-ins uh, and stuff like that so oftentimes yeah. it's a uh, you know kind of like a quote-unquote build your own package type of thing for the promoters from the booking agencies is that why there's uh, why Great White does so many shows with Slaughter or is there a, a little bit deeper connection?
1: Than yeah that? um yeah, uh, our agent handles Slaughter, too, and it's the most requested package that he ever gets. And um, he just gave us this huge block with all the shows we've done with them the past 12 years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of sold out shows and it's just a it, it's a good mix. You know plus we play with a lot of other bands even even bands we never toured with you know the reo Speedwagon, or you know sure. they'll throw in a stick or, or you know it's fun because you know back in the day we toured with the scorpions for like seven months you know what i mean then we, maybe ellis cooper or whoever so we're we're getting to meet these guys that we always respected and listened to, but don't know them, like never met them or anything. So it, it's kind of cool in that way, you know, just to meet these guys.
0: Did you, and obviously Slaughter came a little bit uh, later. I think their first record came out like ninety ninety one, something like that. But uh, did you guys do any shows yeah. uh, together back in the day?
1: Uh, no, I, I don't believe we ever played with them before. Yeah, like you said, they came out a lot later than we did. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I think when they came out, we were like on tour with Tesla or something. And, you know, they followed that with Scorpions. Um, you know, so we were so busy touring, you know, we kind of missed the boat.
0: Well, uh, the newest singer of Great White, Brett Carlisle. he's been in the band for a couple of years now, <laughs> of course, replacing Andrew Freeman uh, from Last in Line. And Brett's a, a super yeah. young guy. I think he's from Alabama. He's still in his 20s, I believe, like 27, 28, uh, something like that. Yeah. How did that relationship yeah. come about? Because I, I know we filled in for Andrew a little bit uh, a couple of times before he became a right. permanent member, but how did you guys wind up connecting with Brett in the first place? Um you know well what happened was we we
1: kind of put out a little uh we auditioned people and a friend of ours he was he's in a cover he was in a cover band a friend of ours said you should check out check out this this guy Brett so we checked out some other people the son of I forget the name of this band but the son of somebody <laughs> some band and we checked out the singer for them and we checked out some other singer we sent them like just a, a couple big songs like two or three and stripped the vocals off and just you know had them put their vocals on there and Brett it seemed to give the best effort i was super nervous about the whole thing um you know cuz we didn't rehearse he just showed up and and <laughs> did the set Uh, I did, I just started about maybe three years ago, started wearing in-ears. Um, I used to be totally against them and I go, I'd rather have a bad wedge, a bad monitor than those things be all isolated in the headphones. But then I tried them and I, I can, I have ambience plus I have a really good mix in my head. That particular night in Vegas when Brett came on, um, I didn't have him my headphones that good. So I didn't really know the impact he had or how good he sounded until after the show. You know, people are going, man, if you don't keep that guy, you're a fool. And, and, and you know, and then the response from the press was really positive everywhere. And... Uh, Andrew was, you know, totally committed to last in line, which we we're totally fine with. We just didn't want to be in a position to where we have to get a hodgepodge of a million different singers every time we every time he's busy. that So it worked out good because, um, you know, Brett killed it so bad that it was just a perfect situation and he really delivers, uh, live.
0: Is, is it weird working with, uh, or hearing, uh, your classic song songs, uh, sung on stage by a guy who wasn't even born when they, uh, were written? Is it a strange feeling?
1: Um, believe it or not, he's kind of an old soul in a way. And when we stand next to the guy, he don't look like he's standing next to Crosby, Stills and Nash or something. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. So somehow it fits. It, 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 it even though he's younger than us, um, he's kind of, uh, like nothing overwhelms the guy. Like, you know, he's respectful and everything, but he's not like, Oh my God, look at this. Oh my God. Dude. that, you know what I mean?
0: Sure. It
1: just, he just goes out and just totally handles it every night. And, uh, so yeah, I, you know, he's younger than us and whatnot. And, and like you said, he wasn't even born in our head or whatever, <laughs> probably, uh, but he, he just goes out. He uh, really brings the crowd into the show like he's uh really good natural. at. He doesn't have a script when he goes out there. He just kind of whatever he's feeling. And, and he sings like perfect no matter what. It, it's uh, pretty incredible, really. We're looking forward to doing an album with him, I can tell you that much.
0: You know, I've, I've seen quite a few people online on and, and YouTube comments and, and things like uh, s- things like that say that Brett is probably the closest sounding singer to Jack Russell, the great what has had, since Jack left. And I, I tend to agree. I haven't seen the band live, but from some of the footage I've seen online, did that play a, a role at all in the decision to, to bring him into the fold? Or was that, was that a, a criteria? Not necessarily.
1: That- uh, what it was is he, he just sang the songs correctly, and he has the range to sing them. I don't think his voice sounds that much like jack but he has the range of jack in his heyday sure and so we're able to play anything we want and we really haven't been able to do that in the past like we're playing like stick it up the first album which is you know up in the astro planes with the the vocal range you know yeah and and he's hitting all those notes full power. I mean, it's not like a falsetto weak, you know, high notes. He he's like straight from the gut, you know, just like screaming these notes, you know. Yeah, like a powerhouse. It's uh yeah, like full power, you know, from A to Z. I mean, he just there's not a song in our catalog that he can't totally handle. Um and I've been writing with them. We've been, you know. I got my home studio. I always have to bring a guy over. I told the story before, but because I don't really have all the gear really that I need to, to make a proper demo here. So I go to Tracy G's, my, he's like a teenage friend of mine, guitar player, really good one. And his studio, he's done 28 records there. Oh, wow. (laughs) Like that. And, uh, he used to be in Dio. I think he was in Dio for like seven years. And he was in a band with Jimmy Bean and Vinny Apice, uh called World War III. That, okay. That's a pretty good record. And, and uh, anyway, so I go down to his house. And we've been doing these demos and stuff. And it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. I, the only thing that's held it up, we were scheduled to go in w- for a couple writing sessions for two weeks. And Scott, our bass player, um, had back surgery, which took him out of the loop for a couple months. So we put it on hold because we want the whole band to be there and involved and stuff.
0: You mentioned uh, working on the new record. Is there uh, plans for any new music this year, or is that more of a 2025
1: thing? Yeah, yeah, this year. We Mm want to come out with something this year without fail. You know, we don't know exactly how we're going to do it, as far as, you know, releasing 12 songs or just come with five or just a video on a song or maybe three songs that, you know, we're, we're just kind of talking to people and see what's the best way, you know, with today's world. How, you know, do we bombard them with a, a you know, 15 songs like old school or do we, you know, give them a video on a song? go to iTunes and Amazon you know whatever um so it's i don't know you know we we're, we're, we're not there yet so i'm not really that concerned the main thing is just writing some killer stuff that rocks
0: hard do you have any songs uh completed yet or not quite
1: oh yeah i uh, i probably have seven complete songs on t- on tape right now um just absolutely killer um but we haven't collaborated but the way we do it is we we get together and we sit in a circle and say what do you got let's hear it what do you got you know and if a riff kind of pokes out we say let's work on that that's badass dude that's killer you know and that and that way it's more of a group effort um i the reason i do full demos. Like, I even blew Tracy away. I played on a a record of his, right? And he goes, hey, anytime you have an idea or something, come on down. And, you know, so I go down and he I go, well, you know, he runs a click, right? And I play a full song. And he's like, dude, you're doing like whole songs? <laughs> like, yeah, man, I got my bass out in the car. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to throw down the bass and do the drums and everything. He's like, "Fuck, oh, you know I thought you were just going to come with a riff. You're playing old songs." I go, "That's the way I roll, man. You know, I write old songs. I don't, you know, but the reason I do that, then I can present to the band and they can hear everything that was in between my ears. In, in you know, especially if I feel confident about the idea." You know, a lot of times when I just show them a riff on an acoustic, they might not, you know, they don't get it. They're not, like, fully understanding that I'm hearing, you know, this badass chorus and I got this and that, you know what I mean? Sure. So I feel it's just better if I just go, yeah, here's my idea, and, and give them, you know, give them the mutt leg, you know, wanting to boil them over, you know. I used to do that even back in the day, in the heyday. If I felt real strong about an idea, I would go into the studio 24 tracks and, you know, record record it the best I could. Just kind of hum melodies because I can't sing up, you know, I'm not a tenor or anything, but I can hum the melodies. And that way I could show it to the band and, and they would at least, before they take out the elephant gun and shoot it down, they, they can, uh, understand my idea.
0: <laughs> well, I want to go back, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to the uh, beginning, because what's so crazy to me is that, uh, when, when you and Jack Russell meet, it's around 1977 or so, I believe you guys end up playing a little bit together for a year or two, but then Jack gets arrested. Uh, he's like trying to, to rob a drug mm-hmm. house or something and ends up shooting the maid that lived at the house. So he yeah. goes to prison and now suddenly, uh, yeah. you're left, uh, without a singer.
1: Uh, partly what you said is, is correct, but it was actually in the Wikipedia, they have it wrong with the, the time. It it was, um, really late 78 and I think after about three or four months, he got in that trouble. I'd only known him three or four months and, um. I think we'd only done about three shows. We couldn't figure out what to call ourselves. Um, we were called Wires, and then we were called Livewire, and then I forget a couple of. It was such a pain in the ass to name our band. It, it, it's the worst torture that I could ever imagine for anyone. Anybody has to name their band. It's just, it's disaster. But um, yeah, it was just, I was painting the backs to AM PM signs. I was only like, I think I was 20 and I was on my way to work. You used to always go to this liquor store and I see, they used to have the, the newsstands with the newspaper and you know, you pay a quarter and, and yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And it said, Jack Russell live in made or shoots, live in made. What do you write? Or, you know, and I'm going, what do you write? I go, that's where Jack lives it can't be the same guy. I mean, you know, it can't be. And I called his mom right from that store. And, and she's like, I go, tell me it's, that's not Jack that, you know, did the shooting. He, yep. He went and did it this time. <laughs> I'm like, he's serious. I was like, so blown away, dude. I, I'm like, my singer shoots people. Are you serious? Really? I couldn't believe it, man. And, uh, and then they kept coming with follow-up stories, you know, like sentenced to eight years and you, y- you know, and all this stuff. And, um, so I went and got a different singer at first, a chick singer, believe it or not, I, I had a bunch yeah. of people, even John Bush was even auditioning. I was going to ask you um, about that. Yeah. He was kind of local. He was local guy. Really, really great singer.
0: And that was before Armored Saint, right? Yeah. That was before Armored Saint, right? It was maybe uh, like a a year or two before that band got going.
1: Could have been, yeah. And uh, he came down, great singer, like I said. But back then I was so... uh, uh, Everything I was coming up with was geared for like a higher range. So I wanted like... Rob Halford's sister <laughs> <So> <laughs> I wanted somebody that could sing you know, in that range so so even though that didn't work out John Bush was badass um, uh, so after I had that girl singer Lisa Baker for like about six months George Lynch decided that he'd like her to be in his band they were called Exciter at the time so he grabbed my singer, so I ha- I got a guy, another guy that he's kind of like a Rob Halford vibe, you know. His name was Butch, sang like Exciter, like Perfect, and you know. Yeah. But you know, I mean, we were, you know, we were playing covers and originals, so you know, just going through it.
0: And then afterwards, uh, Jack eventually gets out, like eighteen months later or whatever. Only served eighteen months of. What was initially thought to be like eight years and then he comes out and he, he uh he begs you to uh, audition for for uh what ended up becoming uh dante fox then
1: yeah well he didn't really beg but his dad was saying hey just you know you, you're doing great just give him an audition and then jack goes <laughs> jack was a little more aggressive he's like You know, give me—I don't care who you got, I'll blow them away.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully not literally. uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, hopefully not literally. But uh, so he came in and sang really good. Believe it or not, the drummer still wanted to keep Butch, or or the singer, but uh, the bass player at the time is named Don Costa. Great bass player. Uh, Me and him go. No way, this this Jack is he's. You know, he's the package. This
0: is what we need. And so then once you guys end up getting that going, you're trying to get a manager, and you, you want Alan Niven, but he passes on the band a couple of times, I believe. And then it was actually Don Dockin who said to Alan, he says, hey, man, you're really missing it. Let's go see the band tonight at the Whiskey. Uh, and so so they come yeah. down and see you play. You end the set with, I think it was uh, I Don't Need No Doctor, the, the Ray Charles song. And then suddenly Niven's like, okay, I get it now. I, I can work with this.
1: Yeah, a lot happened before then. We had a couple of managers, uh, you know. But, yeah, um, what happened was Alan had a relationship with Dawkins after he came to America. And he introduced Don to who. what ended up being Don's managers, Peter Minch and Cliff Bernstein. Oh, wow, yeah. Big managers, you know, they're yeah. like handled Def Leppard and shit. Yeah. So, so he felt like he owed Niven a favor. So when Niven came to him, he was working for Enigma, which was a independent label that had signed Motley Crue and had just signed a Berlin, you know, Terry Nunn, uh, girl lead singer. And, um, Niven wanted a rock band. So he asked Dawkins, who's, who's one of the better rock bands around? He goes, you got to go see this Dante Fox, right? So. Niven went down and just wasn't, wasn't blown away. He, and Don just told him that he, you're missing it, dude. The, these guys are badass. And, you know, you should, I'm going to go with you and we'll go see him. So, so they went and yeah, we did that encore and we played No Doctor. And for some reason he could see, even though it's not an original song, he could see that type of music he could make the original stuff work just by the way he saw us deliver that song. It was a song that we didn't do every show. It was just, we happened to do it that night. So, you know, who knows? It it might've changed our fate if we don't play that, you
0: know? Yeah, no kidding.
1: So kind of amazing. He gave us his card and, uh, you know, rest is history. I mean, we went down to the record company and, he told us he liked he liked what he heard, but he hated that name, man. I can tell.
0: you.
1: <laughs> hated it so bad, dude. He just hated our name so much. So um, he's the one that came up with the name. Yeah, right. Because he said I drove by it. In- yeah.
0: Yeah, you were yeah, driving. I told the to story before, something. but he yeah. said
1: I drove by in a car while he was outside of the club, and people were in between bands, smoking cigarettes, doing what they do. And I came by and screamed, I stuck my head out of the window of a car, like, I don't know what I said, but he I screamed something. And the kid next to him goes, there goes Great White. And Jackie used to call me Great White on stage, but it wasn't my nickname, you know, people didn't say, here comes Great White, he's walking down the street.
0: Yeah.
1: It was just on stage only when I would do a solo. You go, Kendall, the great white.
0: Because
1: you know? I, w- I had a white jumpsuit. I was like the whitest guy in the world, blonde hair. My guitar was white. you know. So it was like the man from Glad or something. And, uh, so, but he never said that when Niven came to the show. So that's not how Niven heard it. He heard that kid point and say, there goes great white. And for some reason, he just thought that was a
0: cool ass name. When he suggested so that, that, that you switch, of, but, when he suggested that you change the, yeah, the name the great way, were you receptive to it, or were you like, eh, I don't know, we kind of want to stick with Dante Fox?
1: No, we we absolutely hated it. And even on the way back to Jack's house, um, we're driving. We, I just said, well, these are some of the compromises. We're not going to like everything, you know. These are the big boys, you know. We, where there's going to be things we don't like, or we just got to deal with it. You know, it's better than, you know, at least we we can move up a couple notches and, you know, get bigger shows and, you know, make a record and shit like that. But Jack and I used to shark fish in Long Beach. He had a boat. and We used to go out and shark fish. Oh, wow. And we that's when we thought of the, attaching the fish to the name. When we thought of that. It's like, dude, this great white name is badass, you know, because we didn't have a vision. We're thinking like people could think it's a racist or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is our thinking, you know, we were rolling this in our heads going, great white, what the hell does that mean, you know? And uh when we attach the shark to it, then we got great white is the baddest shark in the world. And also, the name doesn't dictate what what kind of music we have to play we can just whatever's up top of our head write a song and that's cool you know it wasn't a some kind of a really aggressive name to where you gotta you know write you know speed metal every song or so so that was cool too but at first yeah we we didn't like it at all so seriously you- we didn't like it.
0: When you guys go in to do that, uh, the uh, the first EP out of the night, the uh, the the connection with Don Dockin actually goes a little bit into that too, because uh, alongside Michael Wagner, he was uh, yeah. one of the producers on that too, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Niven had a lot of respect for Don. Um, you know, he's a songwriter. He has experience. Um, I think Don suggested Michael Wagner, so we flew him out. Don had worked with him because he did his first "Breaking the Chains" album with with Wagner in Germany. It was just it, it was a lot of fun, you know. Everything was just like a whirlwind where you know all of a sudden we're recording this EP. They're coming to rehearsals, and Wagner knew no English whatsoever. <laughs> it was it was pretty amazing. But Don knew how to speak with him, like he knew what it, what he was saying, so he was like the translator. Even I don't think Don knows German, but he'd been around Wagner so much, he knows, you know, how to yeah, talk yeah. back and forth and then wow. convey what Wagner was would be saying, because Wagner only knew like a few little phrases, like he's funny too i mean he's actually he, he would answer the phone and just say telephone <laughs> you know and <laughs> no clue what these people are saying you know or or he didn't know euphemisms or soft language so when we'd record if it was like a bad take or you're singing bad he would say don't sing flat <laughs> you know <laughs> it, 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 he didn't know how to say hey i think you can get one better buddy uh You know, you sounded good, but I think you can do one bit, you know, he didn't know all that talking around what the problem is, you know? So he just go, don't, it's like, don't sing bad, (laughs) you know, (laughs) sing good, (laughs) you know? So, so that was really funny to, to work with him. And also if we ever had like an effect we wanted, he didn't use like records that have that effect. he, You know, we wanted a big church ACDC bell on this one tune called Street Killer. And he hung a tire iron in the studio and fishing line, fed the tape way up and just went ding, 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 and and then slowed it, and then slowed it way down. It sounded like ACDC, uh, you know, uh, a big badass church bell. So, if he, if he wanted a motorcycle in a song or something like that, he would have somebody drive it, in a, you know, put microphones outside and have the guy drive by. You know what I mean? Wow. That's the way he was. He created his own um, sound effects. He didn't go with records and stuff. That's incredible. So We thought that was pretty, pretty neat. Yeah.
0: Well, and uh, the song "On Your Knees" was on that uh, first EP, and that was the that was the first Great White song that that uh, got some uh, airplay, right? Yeah,
1: um, Niven, I guess you know is a real good businessman. He had a lot of connections and uh, got us on the radio. Man, we we had no idea it was going to be in rotation when we went and listened. He had us listen one day, and we thought it was just going to play once. Or even just be an ad on the radio. We didn't totally know what was going to happen. You just having us listen to the to KMET, which is one of the biggest stations in LA at a certain time of the day, and so they played on your knees, and we're going, God, this is amazing because we'd never been on the radio before, except for local licks. It was called on this station called K West where they play local bands. So now, but then we come to find out they're playing it six times a day. It's like in heavy rotation. You know, we're, we're in rotation with people like Tom Petty, Yeah, you know, Queens rolling by and stuff, you know, it's (laughs) like, we're going, holy crap. And we didn't even have a record deal. We only had a distribution deal. So this is like kind of unheard of to, to be on the radio like that then it got even more attention when tipper gore was talking about how foul the language was in the song yeah i wanted to ask you about that we got people we got people on tv reading the lyrics (laughs) and we're pumping our fists going can you imagine this you know this is the greatest exposure ever um so we're we're thinking we're getting free promotions from Tipper Gore, you know. This of is of course, yeah. This is cool, yeah. And uh, so that was
0: really neat.
1: But the, and, the song you know, wasn't part from of that, 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 you know. The, yeah, just moved on.
0: The the song wasn't part of the uh, the Filthy Fifteen from the PMRC though, right? She just she brought it up, but it wasn't part of the the main fifteen songs or whatever that they were really going after at that time.
1: Well, I mean, whether it was or not, they made a big deal about, about how terrible we were, yeah. you know, <laughs> that we we were raping and pillaging people. And, you know, I mean, they were taking the lyrics like literal and we're, and we're just goofy dudes partying down and just talking about, you know, sex and rock and roll.
0: Yeah, they so just didn't get
1: it. They made a big deal out of it, so I don't know about the list or whatever, but they put a sticker on the record.
0: <laughs> well, and then Out of the Night, that's what uh, led to the the band getting a deal with uh, with EMI, where you did the, the self-titled Full Length, which was once again produced by uh, Michael Wagner, and this year, actually, 2024, marks the uh, 40th anniversary of that record, I believe.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, it's funny. I, I made a post on Facebook the other day because, uh, something came up and Michael Wagner has dealt with three generations of my family. It's like, I, I have a photo of me 25 years old doing our first record and then a photo of my son jamming at his studio 30 years later. Um, just, you know, just. Jamming and and meeting Michael, and then in 2017 on our uh, on the record, my four-year-old grandson he recorded a pick slide from him. Oh wow! Gave him a metal (laughs) pick.
0: That's incredible.
1: (laughs) he did I've done he's done our first album. He's you know met my son and you know kind of showed him his gear in the studio and stuff, and then recorded. He goes, you know, we got to get him on the record, right? I I just had my grandson just come so he could see everything. He goes, you know, we got to get him on the record, right? And I go, yeah, well, maybe a pick slide, you know. (laughs) And so he'd never even done a pick slide, but he watched my grandson. He would watch videos and see people do them, so he was just emulating what he looked at. Yeah. And he actually did a real, real good pick slide for an intro of a song, so that was pretty fun.
0: Uh, what song, uh, what song on the the last record was it? Yeah. I guess whatever one starts with a, a pig slide, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we went to lunch and, and, uh, I got, I wanted an intro for the song and he goes, well, what are you hearing? And I, I said, you know, like. Kind of like something that starts out slow, but then works its way up, like a, a, a train starting out and like, you know, and just throw a pig slide right through the middle of that. And we got back and within 10 minutes, he had exactly what I was talking about in, in my out of my head. And uh, then we had Noah come in. He was, a little, he was a little crying and stuff at first, but then uh, his mom goes, you better do this now and you know and so then he he quit crying and you know started practicing his pick slide <laughs> it was pretty cute
0: that's incredible and how how old was he at the time four wow he just turned four oh, yeah that's crazy so with that uh with that first record that's where the band really starts to uh somewhat gain traction because you end up getting a uk tour uh with white Snake. And then you follow that up with the U S tour over here, uh, with Judas priest. who I believe they were supporting their, uh, defenders of the faith, uh, defenders of the faith record at the time, uh, which I mean, those, those are, uh, you know, two yeah. pretty sizable tours, uh, to, to really, you know, get the band starting to move.
1: Yeah. And then we got back and, you know, the label really didn't want to have anything to do with this anymore because we didn't sell the amount of records that they were anticipating because We really didn't have a big song on the radio or anything. MTV was playing us at four in the morning. But all wasn't lost, even though, you know, we parted ways with them. We got essentially dropped. They just said they weren't going to do anything on our second record. So it'd be like wasting music had we done one more record with them, Even, you know, because we're contractually uh, linked to them. So we just parted ways. But instead of getting all negative and crying, I was walking on the beach with Alan. He goes, "You know, what do you want to do?" And I, I go, "Hey, man, I'm all in w- w- with the music. I mean, this is, you know, this is all I do." And he goes, "Because I'm going to fight. Because I'm not accepting this uh, getting dropped crap. I want to make another record." So we went and made our own record, you know, borrowed some money from somebody.
0: Yeah. Shot, and, shot in uh, the dark, right? That was the, the record shot in the dark.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and we got, uh, some airplay again, which generated capital records to sign the band. So we got our second chance and, and made a good record, you know, that, uh, got more attention. You know, I, it's funny because I look at stories from other bands I really like documentaries. I want to hear, you know, how do these guys get from wherever they came from to this spot? You know, yeah. even bands like REO Speedwagon and REO Speedwagon didn't hit until this third album. You know what I mean? Yeah, same with you guys. It, yeah. That's like us, you know, they, they call us an overnight success, but believe me, there was a lot of, uh, blood, sweat and tears and, and grinding and ups and downs and whatnot. So, so I hear other people's stories and, you know, things didn't go so good, their first record. And then, you know, so, you know, we weren't really alone in that regard, um, that it took, took a minute for us to hit.
0: Well, it was, it was somewhere between, uh, the, the self-titled and, and shot in the dark that, that, uh, the movie once bitten starring a very young Jim Carrey came out, uh, and his, his character in the movie, of course, is, is named Mark Kendall, which, I guess at the time when it came out, you know, once bitten wasn't your, your guys's record, wasn't a thing yet. So it probably didn't mean much, but then right. when once bitten came out, I mean, it's just a total mind fuck, you know, looking back and, and yeah. thinking about it. Did that, did that movie totally, play any role? Totally. In the-
1: Especially the fact, yeah. The, the fact that they, that his character name was Mark Kendall. It was <laughs> yeah, just it's crazy. really trippy. Yeah. But we didn't have that record out yet. So it wasn't like, you know, they got the idea from that. Yeah. Um, just a free coincidence, you know.
0: Did the movie inspire the the name of of Once bitten at all, or no? Was there, there's no connection. Oh, no,
1: no, not at all. Every everything we were doing was just kind of, you know, kind of shark related. We we're just, you know, a lot of shark themes and stuff. We just thought it was a kind of a cool image because it it had a little bit of edge to it, and you know, you can go crazy with the merchandise and stuff like that.
0: Well, you know, with once bitten, like you were saying, you know, similar to to REO Speed uh, Speedwagon, and you know, hitting on your on your third record and all that, it really is remarkable because everybody's always like, you know, bands have their uh, essentially their entire lives to work on that, you know, that first record, and then that's what leads to you know things like the sophomore slump and all that. Uh, but you know, really for yeah. for Great White, it was the third and fourth records, probably the two key records, and then you know, along with Hooked. Uh, which came later, but uh, you know, it is remarkable. And I would imagine being in that situation where the first two records don't really quite pan out. It's, I mean, it's gotta be like, fuck man, I don't know how much longer I can do this, you know? Well,
1: what it was is Niven was really good at extracting our strengths and he used to hear me when we weren't doing the songs, noodling, And I'd be playing like, I'm going home by Alvin Lee, or I'd be playing some blues thing all the time. It was always blues, uh, blues rock type of shapes I was doing on the guitar. And he's, and you know, he's got the wheels turning up there, you know, and, and thinking you should be doing that, you know, not, he called us Priest Haylin on our first album.
0: Yeah, it's quite a Priest bit different Hayland. than the rest of your catalog. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, so, and we really were trying to be like Judas Priesters that we weren't really playing straight from our influences. We were trying to be something and sure enough, it wasn't successful. And the second album, we we're still trying to find ourselves, but Niven said just play from the heart play from your influences write whatever you want just just go there just be honest you know um, from your influences don't don't try to be anything and we started doing that it's funny as soon as we got honest it was successful people related to it so I guess there's something to say about that because, I, di- I didn't succeed trying to be priest. <laughs> sure.
0: Well, and it was it was during the... And uh, we're
1: young. You know, it's early early in the songwriting. We're very young.
0: Yeah, well, that first yeah, record is know. is so different than uh, the, the rest of your guys' catalog. But uh, it was during the, yeah. the once bitten cycle uh, that the Guns N' Roses, who at that time uh, were also managed by Alan Niven, of course. You know, they put out the, the now massive Appetite for Destruction, yeah. you know, one of the best-selling records of all time. But of, of course, at the time it was released, you yeah. know, it took that record uh, a while to before it really, you know, uh, started moving. Uh, and I remember reading uh, an interview that you did a while ago, and y- you said that um, you heard a you'd heard a demo prior to Appetite releasing, and uh, initially you weren't uh, yeah. you weren't overly impressed. This is, of course, before the record was released, though.
1: Yeah, it w- well, Niven just played me a, a snippet of something it was just very poor quality i i just you know it was hard for me to hear like listen to something that poor quality and go all oh, these guys are going to be the next greatest thing ever you know what sure, i mean yeah. but niven somehow hears that he did it with us you know we were not the greatest thing ever i'm sure you know he just heard potential so that that's kind of where he um uh, he really shined is being able to hear something that maybe someone else would just shoot down and move on. In fact, he had a business partner that said there's a thousand garage bands that are better than this. Wow. And so Niven partnered ways with them because he <laughs> believed in it, you know? Yeah. And look what happened.
0: Yeah. Boy, <laughs> did, boy did that guy fuck up. Jesus. <laughs> yeah exactly so of, of course you guys end up joining guns N' roses uh for the now legendary show at, at the ritz in new york but at that point if i recall great white had actually uh sold more records uh, at that point than guns N' roses did uh so you guys were arguably the, the bigger band but i guess at that time uh, according to niven uh gnr had a crazy crazy buzz uh going on out on the east coast so alan yeah. talked you guys into uh opening the show is that right
1: yeah, that's absolutely uh, spot on, and we had no problem with it. Um, we go, yeah, you know we'll play first. Not a big deal, and we, we knew that, you know, the word of mouth with that with that band was was so extreme. I mean, at one point I heard that Geffen wanted to go in and do another record before it even like really exploded, like when they were at about two fifty. 250,000 and Niven said, you know, he he just begged them to put jungle back to the radio. because people are starting to talk, you know? So it was literally word of mouth that, you know, some guy telling his friend, you got to listen to this, you know? And and him go, Holy shit. And then that guy tells somebody, I, I saw Niven's chalkboard and it was like, you know, so many records this week and you could see it keep growing and growing and growing. It, it, it just, you know, so it was really a grassroots kind of, uh, situation. And then when, when he talked, you know, Geffen into putting jungle back to the radio and taking slash out with Les Pauls and going to big stations and having, you know, these less faults for people. They started to get in markets and then the song just took off Jungle and, you know, but Niven was fighting tooth and nail, to, you know, because he believed in that record so much. He didn't want to just go away from it when he felt like it had major legs and power. So, um, I think he had a lot to do with uh, fighting and and making that, you know, and and by doing that, it got people's full attention, <laughs> and then they liked it, you know.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's uh, like one of the the greatest selling debut albums, or maybe the greatest selling debut album of all time, or, or whatever. But uh, that show at the Ritz, I, I was reading that uh, Alan also had kind of had both of the the two bands separated. Uh, at the show, though, right? Not necessarily.
1: Um I didn't really... I mean, I was right before we went on. I was standing there talking to Stephen Adler. He goes, isn't this great, man? Can you believe it? This is New York, bro. You, you know, <laughs> he's like a kid. He's like a teenager, you know. Uh, all excited and, you know. So... No, we weren't really separated. Uh, Izzy, I used to give him a ride. We used to rehearse near or at a place they were rehearsing at. I gave him a ride home one day, you know. So there was no animosity. No one cared that he managed two bands. Um, we didn't really play with them much. I just that one show and one time I jammed on, on stage at a charity event with Slash, just kind of trading licks and like a red house type deal. <laughs> You know, um, but always loved them. You know, it's a, it's such a good rock band, you know, that, uh, just awesome.
0: Well, and the, the GNR connection, of course, sort of, uh, extends further than that because it was Izzy Stradlin who, uh, suggested to Niven that you guys cover, uh, Ian Hunter's Once Bitten, Twice Shy, uh, for the, the, uh, Twice Shy record, which is interesting though, because prior to that, you guys had already Sort of great White had sort of already had a, a little bit of a relationship uh, with Ian Hunter prior to recording his song, right? Yeah.
1: Um, that You know, that's a story I've heard over the years. Niven, um, I've heard in the past years, he said something different, like he had the idea before that or something. So I, I don't really know exactly, but that's the story I heard that Izzy came with that song and, um, but yeah, uh, just by coincidence, nothing to do with doing the song. When we were on tour with Judas Priest, our sound man was friends with, with Ian Hunter and Ian Hunter lived in New York and he said he had a drum riser in his backyard and we could probably borrow it and use it on the priest tour. So we, we went to his house and borrowed that drum riser. So, um, I didn't even see Ian Hunter then. But then um, there was another time when Ian Hunter came on our bus uh, to a gig, and that was kind of a just freak coincidence because of Craig and uh, the sound man. So he was buddies with him, and he's probably worked with him before, maybe in a live situation, maybe did monitors or something. I don't even know. But um, but when that song came about. We already had a full record. I mean, we, we were, uh, it was just the fact that we had an al- uh, album called Once Bitten" and the follow-up Twice Shy. Yeah. And then Alan, Alan loved the lyrics in this Ian Hunter tune. So we're thinking, you know, we thought it was a cool tune. You know, we, we, we can do it, put our spin on it. And we did, had no idea it was going to be a single. That was a record company. When, when they heard the album, they, they insisted on it. So, and, and then it just, you know, what happened with it, it just went crazy. But I think people related to the lyrics, you know, once been twice shy. I mean, yeah. that can cover a lot. Yeah. Of course. So, and it was a road song and we were, we were a road band. I mean, we we're always on tour. You know, we came home just to make make another record and wash our clothes. I mean, we, we were right back out. We were out for eleven months with Tesla, and instead of going home after that, we took a break and went to the Bahamas for five days. And then, you know what I mean. So that's that's how crazy it was the to touring. Is it, fr- it you know.
0: Is it frustrating at the time that that the label is is pushing so hard for? Uh, once bitten twice shy to, 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 be the lead single, you know, a, a cover song instead of an original, is it kind of like, man, we'd like to, you know, push one of our own songs first.
1: Yeah. Um, our thinking, and we even talked about it within the band is at least we have song to fall back on after So, cause we felt strong about some of the originals and we go, so it's, you know, if this song don't do good, we, we got plenty to come with, you know, to save it, you know. So, but yeah, we we had no idea. You, you never know. I mean, you know, Rock Me was a little bit of a different story. Like when I heard that back, all mixed, and the record company was jumping around in the control room. That's that's a song that I felt like, you know, listening felt like a, like, you know, just somebody that was hearing a song for the first time or something kind of standing away from it and then seeing the reaction. I felt like that song had a real good chance to, to do well, you know, if people, anybody thinks the way I do, (laughs) you know, hoping, but, but once been twice shy, I thought it was recorded really good and it had a good hook. I, you know, I go, this is, you know, it sounds fine. I mean, I didn't say, Oh my God. Really, we're putting that song out. It, it didn't really bother me that much. I but I had no idea it was going to do what it did.
0: Well, yeah, I think I, I heard you say in another interview that uh, uh, after when, when Ian Hunter would, you know, after you guys did that song, when he'd go out and play and he'd play that song, people would be like, why are you playing a great white song? Not not even realizing oh, that it yeah. was a song.
1: Yeah. No, that really happened. I heard somebody, <laughs> uh, they said that to him and, because the song was never hit in the u.s nobody knew the
0: song yeah
1: you know that that's what i mean when i say like this happened not by design as far as the reason we did the song except for we had an album called once bitten and then twice Shy, it wasn't like we were out of material and we need a song so we're going to do a cover it you know because if that was the case, we'd find a hit to do. We're not going to do a song nobody knows, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, we'd get a a massive hit and make it our own in some fashion. Maybe deliver it different, like, you know, the way uh, Lenny Kravitz did American Woman, you know, or something. Yeah. You know, like, take a hit song and make it your own, give it a different beat or something, you know what I mean? But this was uh, not that case. This is just... Uh, generic the way that happened it was we weren't desperate for any songs or anything well and, and we're just thrown on there and you know go
0: gnr was was never going uh to to record that or anything before you guys but uh they weren't they gonna originally do uh that, that song wasted rock ranger uh which is a sort of the the country kind of song um i think it was like a friend of theirs yeah. had written it but then they decided not to do yeah. it so you guys did it
1: yeah we thought it was the funniest song, I, I mean, that I've ever heard. Oh, that's hysterical. a cool
0: song, yeah. It's... You know, have
1: cocaine with the corn cornflakes, and, <laughs> yeah.
0: you know, it was, it
1: was so funny. And we used to do it at the very end of our shows. We would come out, and Audie would get, you know, to the front of the stage and just play a conga drum or tambourine or something, you know. And uh, it became kind of a cult hit, if you will. It, you know, people thought the lyrics were really funny and you know it wasn't to be taken seriously it was just you know kind of making fun of the of the whole party thing you know
0: do you guys the still do that live and, now or
1: no we haven't done it for a while um yeah we haven't done it for a while but it'd be
0: fun to do it yeah yeah so, Twice Shy ends up going double platinum just a few months after it's released, basically closing out uh, the '80s at that, uh, this point. Then enter now the '90s. Hooked comes out in '91. Of course, it's you know it does well as well, but that's also the same year uh, that that Nirvana's Nevermind comes out and grunge really began to take yeah. over. But what's interesting is I was reading in an interview with you. You've said uh, that you weren't really necessarily as bummed out about the the whole grunge thing as. You thought at the time that you should have been, because you felt that by the end of the '80s, uh, things were really starting to get watered down, anyways. So it was, it was almost a, even though it was, it was competition, it was almost like a, a nice change of pace because everything was starting I, to be too samey.
1: When I saw their video and these guys running around with Pendle, Pendletons like they didn't care, and, you know, and the guitar sounds were all, all real jangly and. You know the guys hanging their guitar almost to the ground. I mean, and they're just jumping around like you know they don't have a care in the world. I thought it was just awesome. I, I I loved that the trashiness of it, and the singer had a a real good sense of melody. It wasn't just like horridness or anything. It was like there was songwriting there. You know, I I, I just thought it was kind of refreshing really um yeah it, it did kind of injure us a little bit but it it didn't stop us or make us change how we do things we we just we just kind of took our lumps and went through the 90s you know playing mid-sized venues and <laughs> we still fans were still there you know and there were some good bands in the night uh i always liked that allison change i thought they were amazing
0: yeah absolutely
1: especially the way they did their harmonies man they were they were never like you know there were weird minor things going on with their harmonies and it was like pretty intelligent songwriting yeah absolutely and uh the, the nice guitar sound and that singer was badass you know, like Man in a Box,
0: and it,
1: you know, it, it was just, it was just gangster, man.
0: Yeah, Lane Staley really was, was uh, incredible, but yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you about that because do you feel that that maybe, obviously, like you said, it did, it did hurt Great White a little bit when everything kind of shifted. But you know, was it almost maybe not, not quite as hard because you guys were always more, uh, like you said earlier, a little bit more blues based. Once you guys really start taking off traditional uh, hard rock, almost, and not. The typical run of the mill, uh, you know, "quote unquote" glam band, as as was, you know, com- kind of commonplace by the late '80s, early '90s, yeah. where essentially everybody was copying everyone else. Great White, you know, along with you know yeah. another like Tesla or Cinderella, something like that. You know, you kind of had your own yeah. your own lane, and, and you weren't uh, you had your own sound. It wasn't like you sounded like a million other bands. So maybe because you guys were were putting records out all throughout the '90s, so. Uh, you know, maybe yeah. it wasn't as hard on you guys because you guys did kind of have your own little thing going.
1: The reason they, you know, like a journalist that really hasn't researched the music, it just kind of, is because of what we wore and our hair and everything. We looked like everybody. Sure. You know, because this same guy, the same guy, Ray Brown, was making clothes for everyone. He was making clothes for the Scorpions, White Snake, you know. Motley Crue, Great White, Rat. So we we were wearing Ray Brown clothes, and we all had long hair, and everybody had Aquanet on the rider, and you know I never used hairspray, but my hair was just like pretty intense. And so the hair, uh, hair band brand, we were labeled with it. But when when you speak about the music, it it did have a blues overtone and, you know, not so ultra predictable or what, whatever. Yeah. You know, exactly. there was some pretty good, pretty good songwriting and stuff like that.
0: So, you know, of course, by, by the time the, the early two thousands come out, you decide, you know, you've kind of had enough. You want to take a break from the band. Uh, some of the other members then followed suit and, and you start to do your own thing is it sort of a strange feeling that, you know, just a decade prior, you're essentially on top of the world. And then now you're, you're not in great What anymore and, and almost kind of starting all over again. The landscape is, t- is totally changed and all that.
1: Yeah. It was funny because I was willing to totally start over and I got the keyboard player for Eric Clapton, a really good singer, the drummer from Arkansas, And this bass player that was unknown, but he played, like, unreal. And uh, went and made a record. But my, my first intention was to do a solo album. And I started writing with this guy, Todd Griffin. And he was singing while we were writing. And when I heard his voice, I go, God, I can't sing if you sing that good. So instead of making it a solo album, I made it a band. And we called it train station and, uh, got Dickie Sims, man. He, the sound he had on his keyboards. I mean, you can hear it in Eric Clapton, man, you know, shot the sheriff and cocaine. That's all Dickie that, you know, and, uh, so it was really neat having a keyboard player that had that. Hammond B three, Leslie, you know, these big old Leslie cabinets. And, um, Made a really good record, you know. I was trying to get a record deal. Didn't happen. And so then I I made a solo album and sang. I met this guy at this award show. Bob, um, God, his last name escapes me, but he had, he had uh, Grammys from his work with The Temptations and all this stuff, right? I met his wife, actually. And he, he actually jammed with Hendrix and, oh, wow. you know, just in some jam in New York. And he'd played with John Lennon before. And we were just talking. And I go, because I'd love to get together with you for whatever reason. I have no idea just from speaking with me. And we should write. We should do writer. And so I went to their house and they had a studio in North Hollywood up in the hills. Badass studio, right? So then I got the idea, why don't I make a solo album and this song we wrote called I'm the Man, I go, I'll put this on the record. You know, maybe you can play piano on it. And uh, so I, I I sang on this record. Man, what a pain in the ass that was. <laughs> I'm not a lead singer, man. Yeah. I'm telling you that <laughs> I got so much respect for people who sang after, sing after that. It was so... So difficult. I mean, I, I sang in my range. I'm more like, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan Hendrix range, you know. Sure, yeah. I'm not going to go out there and start scream, screaming Zeppelin or something. <laughs> yeah, it can happen.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, record turned out pretty good. Um,
0: Would you do another solo record uh, yeah, at this yeah, point? I, guess or... I, I, have, I haven't,
1: but um, I've done some songs and stuff. People are kind of bugging me to do one, um, but I just want the reason I did it. I wanted to know if you remove me from Great White, what would it sound like? You know, by yeah. jam with other people. It was really more curiosity than feeling like I want to get out there and and show people how great I am, or
0: <laughs>
1: you know, it was more like I just wanted to you know, experience that because I've been in the band so long. I just want, you know, and you really can hear what I, my end of great white, you know, when you, when you remove me from the band and and I play with other people, you, you go, oh, I hear that element. That's what's in great white. You know, you can kind of understand what, what I contribute. Sure.
0: So, you know, at, at some point, eventually, uh, you know, Jack Russell goes on to do his own thing, but then his uh, his manager calls you uh, to ask you if you'll join up with him uh, to go out on the road for a while because Jack was, at that time, kind of struggling to uh, sell tickets. So you guys go out so that uh, you can do some uh, great white songs or whatever. Of course, that ends up, you know, leading to tragedy, which we don't need to, to rehash that here. But eventually, after all that stuff, it does lead to Great White uh, reforming in a couple of new albums, uh, which were, I guess, the last two uh, to feature him. So it, it really was uh, a full fledged reunion, which uh, I would imagine had to feel, uh, you know, had to feel nice after kind of going out doing your own things for a while, and then, you know, coming yeah. back. Uh, you know, it had to be be good to get back at it with, you know, Jack and, and everybody else.
1: Yeah, because uh, we hadn't seen anybody for six years and you know we just called each other and said hey what do you think get back together and you know make a record and uh everybody was up for it we had we had kind of a party and everybody it was just good to see everybody and uh everybody seemed inspired and so yeah we made another run at it and then um uh, I think it, it late 98 or so, we had Jack Blades uh, involved and produced a record for us. So we went up to his ranch and recorded in Santa Rosa. And that was a great experience. Um, that guy, man, I'm telling you, the energy that guy has is like, and he's a songwriting machine. He, his ideas—he's so electric with his brain. I could play three chords on my guitar, and he—he'd start freaking out. And go, dude, yeah, <laughs> you know. And so, I mean, he's like—that's the kind of energy this guy has. It's he, bizarre. Um, he's such a songwriter. Uh, you know, he's done stuff for Motley Crue. He's, you know, Aerosmith. I mean, he just you see all the platinum records on his wall. What are you doing with Errol Smith? (laughs) You know, what are you doing with that album on the wall? You know, well, I wrote this, you know, co-wrote this song and this, you know, so that, that was just a boatloads of fun. That was a pretty good record, but again, timing, you know, if that, I think if can't get there from here came out like in 1990 or something, it, it, it would have got attention because that that was decent. It was a decent record.
0: Well, I wanted to to ask by so by by 2010, Jack was having some health issues, and and you had a few different people uh, begin to fill in, including, of course, the, the the late Janie Lane from Warren. And I believe this was uh, this was one of the last things he did. I would imagine before he uh, tragically passed away. I think he started filling in a year or so uh, prior to. I yeah. think he passed in, in 2011, right? Something like that,
1: yeah. And doing great because I'm I'm a sober advocate. I work with you know addicts and alcoholics and stuff. Yeah, uh, practically daily. And me and him were very. Uh, he was sober. He was uh, professional, always on time. Um, wasn't drinking or anything. Had his wife out with him, and just saying better than he had in years. And we were in touch daily. I used to send him meditation and prayer every day. He'd call me and say, dude, that hit home, that hit home, and all this stuff. And we tried to identify his triggers, Um, you know, what makes him, you know, slip or go off. And one of the things he said was not being busy, you know, downtime. That's when the, the demons start hitting him. And that, that ended up unfortunately happening. Um, you know, a slip turned out to be fatal. It was just awful. Uh, but uh, wonderful guy, just in, incredible talent. Um, you know, I think people realizing, you know, he played drums on his album. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the guy wrote everything. I mean, he's just a very gifted dude.
0: Well, a couple more things I want to ask you before we uh, wrap this up. Uh, eventually, when when uh, you and Jack end up going your separate ways, there's Great White, and then of course now there's Jack Russell's Great White. As, as it's been like that for I don't know, I guess a decade or, or more by this point. But does that ever lead to any confusion uh, with fans or promoters that maybe aren't aren't hip to the situation?
1: Um, it really hasn't. Um... You know, it's uh, because uh, in our agreement, we want his name to be prominent. And that way, people know what they're going to look at, you know, him and his hired band or whatever. So it's always uh, kind of been fine. Um, You know, uh, we wanted him to make a living too, you know.
0: But, well, I know it's the you know, like. It, I know it's the. Uh, I know it's the. I know this the the Zoom. There's a the crazy lag where everybody's always talking over each other. Sorry about that. Um, but I know it's a million dollar question. It's been asked a, a million times. But at this point, everybody's getting older. Not going to be out there on stage forever. Do you think that there is a possibility the Great White reunites with Jack for even just one final farewell show? Uh, similar to what Kicks did last year. you know I had Jack on a few weeks ago and I told him the same thing. I feel like if Axl Rose and Slash can reunite uh, anyone can and of course, I, I know you've said before that you guys you and Jack, you never really fought so it wasn't it, it, it was it's not like a nasty thing like it was with Axel Rose and Slash. Uh, no. It's really just just over yeah. you know uh, per, you know personal issues and things like that. So do you think that there's a chance for not for even one- personal? It was...
1: I've never taken his addiction personal. It, it, he's, uh, you know, it's just, um, you know, if you're doing poorly with addiction, it, it's hard to keep enabling that. Sure. It just got to where, you know, that, that it never, you know, normally bands break up or, you know, move on because they just don't get along. They just hate each other. And that That's not the case with us. As far as us getting back together, I, you know, who knows what can happen. I mean, you know, but uh, it's not in the plans um, at the moment or anything. Yeah.
0: Well, hopefully, I, I think I speak for everybody when you know it'd be great to see uh, even just just one final show with Jack, especially for guys like me. I mean, I'm in my 20s, so I, I never got to uh, see you guys uh, together. Wow, that's cool, man. But uh, one final note, which you kind of uh, alluded to earlier, but uh, you, you've, you've, uh, you've been sober for now, what, 15 years or something like that? It's been a while, which congratulations on that. Yeah. Um, but you also uh, help people who are actively struggling with addiction, and I, I think you said it all really kind of started, because uh, you're working with a lot of different people, and it really just started from a, a, a Facebook post that you put out uh, however, uh, many, wow. however many years ago.
1: Yeah, I just, um uh, I just thought, you know, cause I'm, a, I'm a pretty bad alcoholic, you know, and I did it. So I figure, you know, that other people can do it too that are in trouble. Um, you know, maybe suffering, maybe they're losing a lot, you know. And, uh, so I just offered my sober friendship, encouragement, cause I kind of was very ignorant to what it takes to get sober. I'd never, you know, knew anything about programs or, you know, I heard people go to rehab. I, I'm thinking like some kind of hospital situation. I didn't really know until I went to one and it still took me a long time to, uh, uh, to get it because I think that I didn't believe in this alcoholism, you know, like it's a disease. I think that guy can drink normal. Why can't I? So I kept going back and trying it again and, and trying to be like that guy. And I just couldn't do it. Very, I'm competitive too. You know, I'm very competitive. So if some guy can drink four beers and watch a game, I, I, I can do that too, (laughs) you know, Sure. but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, I, I would do okay for a couple days, but then I I was right back with the abuse again. So eventually I said, I can't do this. But as far as reaching out on Facebook, a guy gets a hold of me, he starts doing great, and then pretty soon it just, you know, kind of snowballed to where I was speaking to a lot of people one-on-one, basically just sharing how I did it, you know, and maybe they're fans of the band or you know maybe um, maybe that's part of the reason at first they get a hold of me but once we start talking about addiction and, and stuff like that, I've seen a lot of people do do well you know so it, it's kind of neat you know to watch these sick people uh, do better because you know, yeah. a lot of people the abusive ones they lose a lot. They lose families, jobs, you know, and, you know, you get to a point where, you know, people have different bottoms. I'm not saying that that would make them quit, but, you know, some people can get a DUI and never drink again. (laughs) You know what I mean? But then there's guys that just, no matter what they lose, they just can't stop. So, but uh, I just thought maybe, maybe I can make a difference, you know, um, contribute a little bit. You know, it changed my life completely. So I, I, I just just like to see others, you know, do, do good too, you know, and maybe they can get some things back that they lost and, and start
0: doing good. Yeah. I mean, that's uh that's an incredible thing, uh, for you to, to be doing. Uh, and again, con- congrats on the, uh, on the sobriety, man. That's uh, incredible. So, uh, you, sir. what, uh, what else is going on in the, in the world of great white? I know we, we mentioned it's the, the 40th anniversary of the self-titled, uh, any plans for that or anything, uh, th- th- to do anything live or not really?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we have been going back and doing older music, uh, you know, like going back to the first album, yeah. we're doing stick it. We're, we're kind of just grabbing this song and that song. Um, yeah, I just, just saw that hooked, uh, On you know it's one of those deals uh, on this date you know this album was uh, somebody put that on my uh, Twitter or somewhere and so that's pretty cool you know when uh it it actually makes me think about the songs on those records you know because sometimes you there's certain songs that you you don't play live it's almost like it's it's wasted music in a way. It's not with the fans because they discover your deep cuts, but there might be songs that we never play live. It's kind of unfortunate. I can see why people would go out and just play their whole record, like have a special show and just do like, you know, go out and just play everything off of one bit, and, or you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, Those thoughts have been rolled around a little bit. It'd be fun uh, just for one special show to do, you know, uh, just one record, you know. But uh, yeah, it's fun to look back and I was thinking about what was on Hooked, you know. And I remember we did do a cover song that I don't know if a lot of people knew about it. called afterglow that was pretty badass it, you know that steve marriott man you're so gangster that's a good singer humble pie um so yeah
0: well i guess uh you can get all of uh, your upcoming dates at officialgreatwhite.com uh mark thanks so much for coming on man i appreciate yeah. it and i i gotta say man it was uh it's an honor to have you i remember being uh being a kid, like I said, I'm still in my 20s, so I, you know, wasn't around back in the day.
1: But <laughs> That's amazing, you're enjoying.
0: I, I, uh, I, oh, awesome, man. Yeah, no, I, I first uh, discovered Great White on the uh, Music Choice channels, and I remember seeing they put a uh-huh. picture of you guys up, and you had that big uh, black uh, hat on, and I'm like, man, oh, yeah. I'm like, man, that guy looks so fucking cool, man. And uh, to to uh, to have you uh, there, it is. It. Yes, yeah. Oh, man, that is incredible. (laughs) My
1: mom, my mother used to save everything. You know, I would never have something like that, but my mom, I used to give her t-shirts and i give her, you know, of course, platinum records, but but stuff she would put in her box and even like the smallest little ad for a show before we were even great white, like she saved everything. So when she passed away, I got her box and I have every I have four tour jackets. I mean, like every single t-shirt from every tour, you know, I would have never saved all that stuff. I'm not yeah. good with that, you know? So it's, it's kind of neat. She had a, a couple hats, you know, that I gave her.
0: Well, that was incredible. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that on camera. That was, that was great. Do you still have that, uh, <laughs> you still have that shark, uh, the shark guitar. Yeah.
1: Um, it, it's not in here, though. <clears throat> um, my original shark I gave to Dick Clark years ago. Oh wow! And he called our offices and wanted wanted my original shark for the Hard Rock. I think he was part owner or owned the one in Hollywood. Oh, Okay. And then it moved around. It was they, you know, they want everybody to look at the different merchandise so the or the memorabilia. So they move it. And I know it had been in Hawaii, and somebody told me it was in Rio at Hard Rock. And then it was at one other one besides Hollywood. I can't remember, but, um, but then I had another one made about 15 years ago, and it, it's in storage. It actually plays pretty good. That, that one that I gave away just sounded horrific. I did, it was more like a novelty, Sorry. something <laughs> for the fans to look at. You know what I yeah. mean? It went, And it was funny when I, I, my first endorsement with BC rich, they made me a shark guitar, but it looked like flipper. I mean, this thing looked like a dolphin. I go, dude, you know, you got the wrong fish. You got the wrong fish here, bro.
0: Oh my God. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on and and, uh, taking some time, man. I really appreciate it. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Hope to see you soon.